When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Corinne Clevidence about her essay, Ghosts of the Southern Ocean, which appeared in issue 22 of The Common. Corinne Clevidence is the author of the novel The House on Salt Hay Road. Her work has appeared in Guernica, The Washington Post, Off Assignment, OZ, O Magazine, and elsewhere. She has received fellowships from the Fine Arts Work Center, Yotto, McDowell, the Rona Jaffe Foundation, the Sustainable Arts Foundation, and other organizations. Corinne Clevidence, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. I'm thrilled to be here and so happy to have my essay in the common. Okay. Would you set the scene for our conversation, sort of describe where you're calling from? Well, I'm right across the bridge from you, actually, in Northampton, Massachusetts. And um, I live on a street that has a view of the Summit House and the Holyoke Range. And just this morning, I was walking my dog along the Hadley Dyke, along the Connecticut River. So I'm right here in the the Pioneer Valley. Um, And I'm in my second floor study, tucked on my futon with my feet up on my little table. That sounds very nice. Um, We have been having such nice warm weather this week. We've been very spoiled. (laughs) I love the fall here. Yeah. I would love to start off with a reading from your essay. Would you read the first few paragraphs for us? Sure. My mother cuts the outboard motor. Over the slap of waves on the boat's black pontoon, I hear the fur seals barking. The cliffs are dotted with white albatross, Seals sprawl along the rocky shoreline, gray fur seals with black, rowdy pups, and brown elephant seals beached like massive timbers. Their smell carries across the water a familiar testosterone-laden stink, like a mix of musk and onion rings. See the tripods, my mother asks. There are ten of us in the 16-foot-long Zodiac she's driving all in bright red expedition-issue jackets. On our way to Antarctica, 
were stopping at Elsa Hole Harbor at the northern end of remote South Georgia Island. Other zodiacs cruise the harbor, and the red jackets and black boats stand out against the muted greens and browns. Here in the middle of the southern Atlantic Ocean, 1,200 miles from Cape Horn, there are no buildings, no cars, no telephone poles or cell towers. The landscape seems untouched by people. It takes me a minute to spot the three rusted cauldrons my mother's pointing out, sunk amid the green tussock grass halfway up the seal-littered beach. A gull perches idly on the middle one. From the end of the 18th century onward, both fur and elephant seals were hunted here in the southern ocean. The elephants, as sealers from England and New England called them, were killed for their blubber, rendered into oil in pots like the ones half-hidden now among the tussock grass at Elsahol. A single bull seal could produce 86 gallons. One of the earliest of these expeditions left London in 1792. As wild as this landscape seems to us, how much stranger it must have been for Captain Pittman and his crew. In a letter to a fellow sealing master, Pittman advises, be careful you are not deceived by the islands of ice. Thank you for reading that. For, for our listeners who may not have read your essay yet, would you describe what the piece is about? Well, it's about a trip I took to Antarctica with my son when he was 12. Um, and we were there with as guests of my mother and stepfather who work in Antarctica and who I've actually worked with in Antarctica as, um, as staff on an ex- expedition cruise ships. And so the piece is really about family, my family and my family's history of travel and far-flung places and working with my mother and my stepfather, and also about returning to a place after several decades and the way my understanding of the landscape had changed. Yeah, I'd also like to add that there are some really gorgeous photos in this essay, if people look at it online, some really lovely photos that I think you took. Oh, thank you. Some of them I took and some I think my mom or my stepfather took. I I grew up um, watching slideshows because my grandfather started traveling to Antarctica and working on ships in Antarctica in the 1970s. And everyone would start with this really not very impressive uh, shot of a town and the, the sort of brownish not impressive city, but the word Ushuaia was always, I don't know, evocative to me. Mm-hmm. And and that's where you start typically on trips to Antarctica and that's in Tierra del Fuego. That's so interesting. I would love to hear what inspired you to start work on, on this specific essay. I know you've written about Antarctica before in different ways, but, but how did this essay specifically come together? I think I think really because I lost my dad suddenly in, in 2016. And I think that's pretty, I think that that has affected pretty much everything I've written since. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking a lot about the trip that, the, the, the trip that I was on with my son. And, um, and I think about mortality and about family. And it was making me you know, more aware of my mother's mortality and my stepfather's mortality and my own mortality and about family and sort of what we pass on. Um, I guess that's, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that because I feel like the the piece doesn't feel very dark to me, but I could definitely understand how how going through that experience would sort of 
you know, bring your attention to certain aspects of the experience. Yeah. I, I looked back in our records and it, and it looks like you submitted this piece to us in, in 2019. So I'm assuming that it was eventually accepted at least a few months into the pandemic, maybe more. Um, and I have to tell you, I enjoy this essay so much. And I think a big part of that is how starved for travel and adventure we are right now, <laughs> not, you know, not traveling much. Uh, and you write so beautifully about the landscape and the sort of different layers of it, the wildlife, the humans exploring it, the history. And I, c- I could almost pretend that I was there. Oh, thank you. Uh, and there's so much about family too, like you said, and, and it's something that we're, we're thinking about more, I think, in the pandemic. I was just wondering if your view of this essay has changed at all, like if that's when you were working on edits for publication or just, you know, throughout the last couple of years, did you experience it any differently over time? Well, I think certainly I miss traveling enormously also. Um, but I think what you said about our appreciation for our awareness of family and how that has been influenced by the pandemic rings really true to me too. And actually I was traveling with my son, the same son who's in this essay, um, visiting my daughter in England for her junior year abroad when in, in March of 2020. And my mom was traveling with friends of hers in Morocco oh at goodness. the same time. And it was this sort of crazy scramble to get everyone back. And it was really nerve wracking. And I was mm-hmm. worried about her flying back through JFK. I think my son came back on like March 14th and my mom came back on the 15th and I came back on the 16th and it was just a a crazy time. And then both my children ended up being home with me unexpectedly because they should have been in college and and couldn't be. But the thing that was actually harder for me than missing the travel, which I love to do and I'm used to doing really pretty frequently. I've been very lucky that way, being able to travel was getting to see my family. I had my immediate family. My my kids were home, mm-hmm. but we're a big sort of inclusive, lively family. And we like to get together and we weren't able to do that. And that was really hard. That was harder. Um, so I guess reading the essay in the pandemic, thinking about it in the pandemic was really reminding me of those times we were all together on the ship like that. What an amazing thing that was to get to experience. And I feel lucky that I had that. And I, I think that time is past in some ways. And and so it gives it a sort of elegiac feel to me looking at it now, you know? Yeah. Um, So since we're talking about edits, I was also wondering if you, if you had any experiences you wanted to share or anything you could tell us about sort of the editorial process that you went through. Um, I think you probably worked with Liz Whitty, who's our um, nonfiction editor. I definitely worked with Liz Whitty. Okay. And I She's love, great. Love Liz, Liz Whitty. She's <laughs> fantastic. She is a great editor. And I actually don't really like being edited. Um, she <laughs> was fabulous. And I think that she really made the essay stronger. And the thing that I appreciated so much was that she kept pushing me to go a little deeper, mm. a little deeper into the emotional part of it and to the family part of it. And I think that that was really what was hardest for me to write about in some ways. And, mm-hmm. um, and her comments and her, yeah, her edits on it, the things that she wanted to see brought out more, um, explored a little more deeply. Um, I'm really grateful for because I think they did make the essay better. 
I'm glad that you enjoyed the experience. Yeah, Liz is really good at um, finding the, the spots in an essay where it could go deeper, where it could be more more personal or more emotive. Yeah. She's brilliant. I love her. She's fantastic. We're very lucky to have her. <laughs> One of the parts of this essay that, that spoke to me was your reflections on, um, in, in the essay, you're watching your 70-year-old mother working working out there, drive, driving the, the boat, and wondering how much longer she could do it. And, and that combined sort of worry and also joy of seeing an agent par- aging parent still, still working at, at something that they love. Um, and I really felt that personally. I, I grew up on my parents' dairy farm, and, and my father oh. still farms now. He, but I think he's probably around seventy, and it, and it, you know, it takes a toll on him in a way it didn't when he was younger. But I, of course, I don't want him to have to stop. You know, so I was just wondering if you could talk more about that experience and putting that in the essay, and maybe anything else you want to tell us about sort of watching your mother experience that kind of life over the years. Oh, thank you for for mentioning that, and and I I love my mother. I admire her enormously. When I was growing up, she wasn't working on these ships. She and my stepfather married when I was 16, and they have a little alpaca farm on the South Shore of Long Island. And I was just so used to, I, you know, knew them, loved them, saw them. They're very um, of the place. Like they're just, they sort of keep the whole, it's sort of the family seat as it were. Um, They keep it all going. And everybody comes back. We have this big family reunion every year in the summer, yes. and they're the ones hosting. And so in the after I got out of graduate school in the 90s, by some like miracle, I wound up getting hired to work with them. There was just this last-minute um, vacancy. They needed somebody on this ship they were working on to be the assistant to the expedition leader. And I happened to have just graduated from um, my MFA program and I was like not very employed and my mom <laughs> recommended me and I wound up, you know, like three weeks after the phone call or whatever, flying down to join them in, um, in the tip of South America. And it was astounding to me to see these people, my mom and my, and my stepfather, Pete, who I absolutely adore in, in this completely unfamiliar place to me where they were entirely at home. They knew everybody. They were speaking phrases in Russian to the, it was a Russian ship, the Alaterasova. And they were working with people who were basically like their shipboard family. They were so close. They had worked for years and years and years together and they knew each other and they had all these in jokes and memories, <laughs> and it was like this wonderfully strange um, glimpse of them. It was more than a glimpse because I worked the whole season with them, and it was such a treat to get to spend this time mm-hmm. with them. As a, I mean, I, I felt like an adult. I was in my twenties. I don't really, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I, you know. I, but it was a really different way of spending time with them and getting to see this other world that they had made for themselves. And I, they just really loved their work. They were so good at it and brought so much joy and excitement to it. And my mom is just the kindest, most easygoing, gentlest, calmest person I I know. And she's also really a bit of a badass. And I think that I (laughs) see, of course, really. 
she just stands at the back of the, you know, a Zodiac is, it's this um, like rubber inflatable boat that just can take a lot of abuse. Like you run it onto the rocks and you bump it against things. And, and she's just standing at the back at the outboard engine, you know, telling people where to sit and, and what to do and having conversations with the Russian deckhands and, and just taking people through around these icebergs and landing on rocky beaches and doing a stern landing, which is where you have to back up and, and back the boat up the beach in this tricky way where you lift the engine at just the right time. Mm-hmm. And she just really knows what she's doing. Just super, super capable, super matter of fact and, and low key about it. And it was amazing to see that. It was really a gift to me. And so going back with each of my children in two separate trips, I, I took my, my daughter's older and we went together a couple years before this trip that I took my son. Um, I was so happy to give my children that a similar experience mm-hmm. of seeing their grandmother who, you know, they associated with like, I, I don't, you know, Christmas and the farm that they have. And right. this also these very familiar places in some at home in Antarctica, basically. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so nice. I love, I love hearing about that. <laughs> I, I mean, it really, it's really on the page too, but I love hearing even more about it. <laughs> I think my favorite moment in this essay was um, when you explained how, how your view of, of these old whaling outposts that you visit, the sort of artifacts and the ruins and, and how your view on that has changed over the years. Um, as you go on different different trips and different excursions. So I'm, I'm just going to read this quote. It, it says, When I first saw these ruins, they seemed to belong to the distant past. Now I understand them as part of a larger pattern of exploitation. Can you talk more about that? It just it really struck me as something that is so apt for what the world is going through right now. And, and I don't just mean environmentally, but sort of like historically and culturally as well. Well, this um, historian who I worked with when I was working on the Alaterasova and who was on both of these trips, actually, with my son and also with my daughter, Bob Burton, who's a British polar historian and author, just knows everything about Antarctica and about actually the Arctic as well. Um, But I remember him saying in one of his lectures that people are constantly describing Antarctica as pristine. And he said, it's not pristine. And the evidence is there, as I tried to say in my essay, for anyone who is paying attention and, and is, you know, has an idea of the history of the human, the human history of Antarctica, because people have been trying to um, exploit Antarctica and before, since before the continent itself had even been discovered, you know, um, and so I think for me, it's just always been tempting to see the human history in Antarctica divided between the explorers who are these noble people who are trying to further knowledge and then mm-hmm. the exploiters who are just going down there to slaughter seals and slaughter whales. But of course, it's so much more complicated and, and nuanced than that. Um, and I think that both come out of, of both are arising out of you know, facets of human nature and that it makes sense that, um, that both are, 
are are going to be done. And I do believe in travel and I believe in the power of new perspectives. And I believe that people should be able to visit Antarctica. It's been incredibly meaningful for me and for my family to get to see these places. But that's also it, that also poses a threat. And so in a way, Antarctic tourism is sort of the, the new exploitation mm-hmm. of the continent. I think it can be done. I think it can be done right, but it has to be done very carefully and very respectfully with a lot of safeguards in place because the landscape is so is so delicate and the balance as we are seeing is the whole world is so connected and the idea of there being this place that's untouched is just a false idea. Mm. Yeah, I think you do a really great job in the essay of, of like really giving us a sense of um, kind of the the mess and the gore and the smells and everything of, of what whaling um, used to be like, or when they rendered the seals, um, you know, for, for oil, you know, how viscerally uncomfortable those things are and, and that, that it would have smelled bad and that the carcasses would have floated around and stuff. So it felt like it was very vivid, this idea of like how, how violated this place had been. And, and I, I like the idea of like, when you were younger, that felt like, a thing that was past, like, like a thing you could, you could be like, Oh good. I'm glad we're past that. <laughs> and, right. and, you know, and as we get older, I think we see that we're just on this kind of continuum of doing damage to the environment in lots of different ways. And um, I also really liked, you said sort of that your sympathy had shifted over time and that when you were younger, you know, you had just seen that as sort of a horrible thing. And then as you got older, you became more sympathetic to, you know, the economic realities that forced men to, go and do jobs like this, which were very uncomfortable and, 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 you know, dangerous and everything else. Absolutely. And I think I was also becoming more aware that the things that we find ourselves doing to, to make money are so often tied to what we, what we know, what's been taught to us, what's in the family, like those connections. That's how I wound up working in Antarctica my grandfather started and my mom, my uncle, my stepdad, myself, like that, that winds up being part of how people find themselves in places they might not otherwise end up. Yeah, that's an excellent point. There's another moment I just want to ask you about. There's a really nice moment where your son sort of politely pretends to be impressed by some baleen that the ship's <laughs> biologist is showing him. <laughs> yes. Even though he's sort of grown up playing with it at his grandmother's house and has definitely seen Baleen before. Could you talk about that moment? Oh, I don't know. He's a darling. He has a really good heart. He's a sweetie. Um, And he did, he and his his sister grew up going to my mom and and stepdad's house was just like a second home to them. And it's just filled with this very um, wonderful, eclectic, crammed to the gills sort of house where they have things from their various travels. And, you know, there's a ostrich egg over here and a piece of baleen and a little um, bones from various, various scavenged expeditions or like things that people have found. And um, so, yeah, he, he wanted to not be impolite, but it wasn't something that really impressed him because he had, you know, seen that he'd been seeing that since he could see basically. Yeah. It was really fun traveling with him. And I, I yeah, the, the image of him climbing into the tripod at the 
outside the museum in Gritvik and then sticking his boots out, out and telling me to take a picture and then getting, getting himself pecked by the, by the king penguin on South Georgia too. It was really such a joy to share that with him and to be able to be there with him and also my mom and my stepfather. I just felt really lucky to have, you know, both the generation before me and the generation, the next generation mm. um, together on the ship like that. Yeah, I think that that joy really comes across very well in, in those moments that you mentioned. Um, I also just love that that moment with the Baleen because it sort of reminded me that I'm in, I'm impressed by seeing Baleen. And I think most readers would find that very exotic. And so it was sort of a reminder to me that those kind of things are sort of the bread and butter for your family, but not for me. And so it was reminding me how how, how strange this world was to me, but not but not so much to, to your family. It was pretty funny. By the time he got to go to Antarctica, he was like, well, of course he was going to Antarctica. Do you know what? I, he's 12 years old. <laughs> His sister had been. It was just like, when's it my turn? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's different. <laughs> yeah. So you, you've written plenty of nonfiction, but you also have a novel that came out from Macmillan in 2011 called The House on Salt Hay Road. Would you tell our listeners a bit about that book? It really, it sounds fantastic. Oh, you're so kind. Well, that book came out of really um, my experience growing up on the South Shore of Long Island. And one of the things I'm realizing that I that is a, a scene in that book is one of the characters, it's set in the 1930s partly because I wanted to write about an earlier time on Long Island itself, which has been pretty trashed, honestly. Um, (laughs) Really, Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful, beautiful landscape. And the hurricane of 1938 was something that my, that that people I knew had experienced, like people I grew up around had experienced. Mm -hmm. And it was really exciting for me to get some firsthand accounts of that. And I wanted to include that in the novel. So there's a boy named Clayton in the novel who skips school to go over to Fire Island to see a whale that's washed up on the beach. And that's something that um, I did as a kid. I remember my mom sending me and my sister to school late with a note saying, you know, I took the girls (laughs) out of school because I wanted to show them this whale that had washed up on the beach was just totally my mom. Like I always, always thought that that sort of experience would be more important um, than time in the classroom. So it, it was just an image that has stuck with me. And I think um, comes out in other things that I've written, but the wonder, like the, the horror and the wonder both, you know, it was so sad in a way this huge, huge carcass, like larger than anything I could wrap my mind around. I would think I was in like fourth or fifth grade at the time. Um, so I use that in the, in the novel. And the novel is really about a family and, um, and this, this hurricane and, and this time that is this lost time. I think I always do kind of write about loss now that I think of it mm. and about landscape. Um, But I think growing up on the South Shore of Long Island, I was aware because of the storms that we would get and because of changes in the beach, you know, the beach there, I grew up right on just smack up against the salt marsh, about halfway out 
on the South Shore in Brookhaven Hamlet. And across the that um, part of Long Island is the great across the Great South Bay is Fire Island. Mm-hmm. And so we would sail across to Fire Island and the beach was always changing and a storm would come and affect the inlet and um, affect the the sand and the I think I and, and the pond would flood and the power would go out for a few days. And so I think in that novel, I really wanted to get at that sense of vulnerability to a shifting, a shifting world. And I think mm-hmm. that that's something at this time in this, you know, in, in this, in this country, we've been able to kind of pretend for a long time that that's not the case but we are very vulnerable and the world is always changing and that's just getting more and more rapid and more and more true. Hmm. Yeah. It's funny how sometimes historical novels are kind of the way that you can show what, what's actually happening now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good point. Uh, so I just have one last question. I'm wondering what you're, what you're working on now. I think I heard that you're working on a novel about Antarctica. Well, I finished that actually. And oh, that excellent. Is, Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm excited about it. It's on submission right now. Okay. It's a it's a it's a novel that takes place in Antarctica on a ship very like the one that I worked on and have worked that my mom and stepdad have worked on. And I think really in writing it, it was it was a way of honoring their their time there, their experience there, their friendship, the community, the really tight community of people working on these ships, um, which is something I've never seen anywhere else. It's a little bit like a, a theater troupe, maybe in a way, like it's yeah. that kind of intensity because you're just on all the time for this mm-hmm. chunk of time. And it's your job to make everything go well and do the best you can in this um, you know, the conditions, the weather's changing, the seas are changing. You have to constantly be on your toes, ready to very flexible. Every, you know, you, you have to be ready to come up with a new plan at the drop of a hat and they just work so well together. And they wanted to give a sense of that community and also a sense of the landscape, which I love so much, so much, and which has affected me so, so deeply. So it was an absolute pleasure to work on that book. And now I'm working on something different, which is a revenge novel, <laughs> completely different, um, which is set in part on Cape Cod. So that's a, that's a, a completely different project. Very nice. Uh, those both sound fantastic. Um, let me you. know when I can read them. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Corinne Clevidence, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great talking with you. So good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Listeners, you can read Corinne's essay, Ghosts of the Southern Ocean, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.